Thanks, uh, thanks, brothers, for sharing with us and for uh, processing through and recounting your experiences so that we could be encouraged by them also. So this week I was um, thinking about some of the people in our congregation. I shared this at our prayer meeting this morning, but I was talking with someone this week who um, was talking about ending their lives and wondering, you know, why is it, why, you know, why should I keep on living and why should I keep on going? And so sometimes I, you know, yesterday, today I was thinking um, about people in our congregation and things that they go through and the things that they struggle through and and wondering what makes it worth it for them to continue living on. I think about some of the prayer requests that come through from uh, house church shepherds reports. I think of some of the prayer requests that come through over emails and in conversations. I, I know that some of y'all have been studying very hard for very long times for some important exams, things like the SAT. Some of you students have been studying and, oh my gosh, you know, my parents are going to destroy me if I don't get this, you know, get this certain score on SATs and, and LSATs and uh, DATs and uh, MCATs and NCLEX and CP and all these different exams. And sometimes you wonder what, what drives a person to study like that month after month after month after month. Some people year after year after year after year. What drives people to do that? How do they carry on when it's such a pain studying that much? Because they know that at the end of these exams, there's something waiting at the end of that. My dreams are going to be accomplished if I can do well enough in order to take that next step in my life. I think about you know, our, the many people in our congregation who um, have children running around. I think about the people who, uh, Sarah Hyun, who had twins a, a couple weeks ago. And I think about, man, what is it that causes a, a woman to, to, it's a little like thing growing within her. It's crazy. But she had two things growing within her. It started out like a little pea and then a golf ball then a tennis ball. And it gets bigger and bigger until you got these massive bowling balls inside of her stomach carrying that around. That's at least, I don't know how many pounds it is. That's a lot of poundage right there. And then pushing that thing through her. What motivates a woman to do that? What motivates a, a, a woman to... If it's not pushing it through to get cut up in major surgery and they're getting stitched back up, isn't it the joy of knowing that that nine-week pregnancy has a purpose? There's something beautiful about it that's going to come about at the end. What'd I say? Yeah, we wish it was nine weeks, right? Nine months. Sometimes feels like nine years. Not for me, but well... And then I think about some of our, you know, we have this renowned group of meatheads within our congregation that work out and lift weights and ah, all this like crazy stuff. And they drink like yucky protein powder and all this stuff and they get massively big. And I'm like, man, what motivates a person to want to lift that much weight? It's like weird to me. Why would you put yourself through that much pain? My philosophy when it comes to working out is no pain, no pain. (laughs) But for these guys, it's like, well, I want to look a certain way. No pain, no gain, right? And so you put in the effort because you want to get big. What causes people to endure through hardship, through suffering, through challenging times? Isn't it this sense of purpose, a sense of meaning that we have? If this is true on a micro level, scale back and on a macro level, 
right? On a Mac, from, for, from a life perspective, isn't it true that the only way that we can endure through suffering and hardship is if you know that there's a purpose for that? So the question that people have been asking for all the years is what is the purpose of life? What's the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? It is a million-dollar question. you got to know it if you're going to survive this life. What is the meaning of life? Why is it that out of billions and billions of galaxies, one galaxy, which is the Milky Way that we live in, out of seven billion people, you, me, just a little tiny drop in the whole massive infinite ocean of this, this, this world that we live in, what's the purpose of us living? What's the point of it all? People have asked that for countless millennia, asking this question, what is it all about? This is a question that the Bible asks as well. There's a teacher who writes under the guise of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes who asks this question, what is life all about? And as we look into this, this is one of my favorite books. In fact, 2010, we went through about 12 weeks on this. We're in the middle of this series called It's All About Jesus, as you can see. If you're new here, if you don't know, if you haven't been, been following with us, we're showing how everything in the Bible, every story, every person, all of that stuff is pointing to, preparing for, reflecting, or resulting from the work of and the life and the person of Jesus Christ. So as we look into that, I wanna, we're in the middle of the poetry books, the books of, of, of the poets, and, and trying to ask what does the book of Ecclesiastes say? How does this lead us to see that even this book is about Jesus? Okay, we're going to read from the beginning and the end, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And then we're going to read chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Okay, the beginning, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, written by a guy who writes under the name of Solomon, um, but for reasons that I'm not going to go into here, um, we have great reason to believe that's not really Solomon. It's somebody writing as Solomon, which was popular to do. It was a genre popular in the time that the Bible was written. Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Ecclesiastes right after Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. Okay, so Ecclesiastes chapter 1, this is God's word. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, <laughs> meaningless, says a teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. Sun rises, sun sets, hurries back to where it rises. Wind blows to the south, turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea. Yet the sea is never full to the place the streams come from. There they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which we, one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There's no remembrance of men of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. If you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, uh, we're going to read verses 13 and 14. This is the end of it all. After he finishes this whole experiment on what is the meaning of life. 13 and 14. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing 
whether it is good or evil. This is God's word. So you've got this guy. They call him the teacher. Okay, the teacher in Hebrew is the kohelet. It means a teacher. Gathers a bunch of people together and he starts teaching them about the things that he's observed in life. So why does he write as the son of David, the king in Jerusalem? Why does he write as Solomon? Again, this was popular to do in those days. It was a genre. It's as if we were to write, maybe somebody would write a poem and he would say, this is, um, I am writing as President Obama. And then he would write his you know, treatise on what's right and what's not right in, in America and in the world. This was a popular thing to do. But why Solomon? Because Solomon was known to be the richest, wisest man in the ancient world. Everybody from kingdoms around knew who Solomon was. So he's saying, listen, I have a unique set of skills and experiences that cause me to be able to say things that you need to listen to. Kind of like Liam Neeson in Taken, right? I have a unique set of experiences, so listen to what I have to say. That's kind of what the Kohelet, the teacher, is saying. So he's saying, look, what is the purpose? What is the meaning of life? Listen to what I have to say because I have the, the, the riches, I have the means to explore everything, to do the social experiment using my life as the platform, as the laboratory, and then at the end we'll see the conclusion. Okay, so three things. What is the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Here's the first thing. We all look for something to give our lives meaning. We all look for something to give our lives meaning. Okay, let me set this up and then we'll dive into the text. We all look for something to give our lives meaning. Think about that for a second. Is there something in your life that you're looking to to give your life meaning? To know that you have a purpose for being alive. So a few weeks back, uh, one of the great actors of Hollywood, Robin Williams, Alex mentioned him. He passed away. If you don't know Robin Williams, you've got to see some of his stuff. He was amazing, amazing, made upwards of 20, uh, is it billion dollars for him? I don't know how much move, 20 something million or billion. I forget the letter. M and B is not important, but the point is that he, people would pay lots of money to watch him act on screen. Why? And why was it? I remember watching Robin Williams in a movie called good morning, Vietnam. This was, I mean, I laughed I watched it with my brother. We sat there watching Robin Williams, and we laughed out loud before laughing out loud was LOL. We literally laughed out loud so much. Our stomachs were hurting. You watch him in Mrs. Doubtfire, Patch Adams. This guy is a comedic genius. And you know that most of the movies in which he had people in stitches, he ad-libbed most of those scenes. He was amazing. People laughed and laughed and laughed. And I remember he was, I mean, he, he was amazing for what he did. And so when he passed away, ending his own life, committing suicide, the world mourned with him and for him in a way that we haven't in a long time. Why? I know when celebrities pass away, we always grieve. Heath Ledger passed away. So all these people die. Kurt Cobain. We get sad. But when someone ends their own life, we stand up and take notice, especially the why is it that Robin Williams drew so many people to mourn his death? I think part of it is because he was hilarious and he made so many people laugh. And yet someone who made so many other people laugh couldn't find reason in his own soul to laugh. I think one quote sums it up the best to me. 
as I was reading a lot of his uh, obituaries and people re- talking about his life, he, he finished this one comedy show and the crowd was just roaring in laughter. He walked off the stage. They gave him a standing ovation. They're still cheering. And he walked off stage and he put his hand on somebody's shoulder off stage. And he said, why is it that I can make so many people happy, but I can't find happiness for myself? That is tragic. And so some people say, you know what? If only Robin Williams could have found happiness, then he'd still be here. But I don't think it's as simple as that. We can just be flat out honest. I don't think it's that simple. You know, there's a, I was reading this magazine article in, the, in a journal called The Atlantic, written by a girl named Emily Smith, lady named Emily Smith, and it was called There's More to Life Than Being Happy. That's why I think there's more to life than being happy. But the article basically says, um, it quotes a lot of different people, a lot of researchers, scholars, uh, social scientists, and stuff like that. And one of the things the article says is that the prevailing view amongst Europeans is that the highest ideal for American people is being happy. They say they will bankrupt everything in order just to be happy but the reality is that we in america in america the rate the incidence of depression 1960 to now is 10 times higher now than it was then you know technology has increased relational connections have increased uh, more money more everything than we ever had back then the average onset of depression in 1969 was 29 years old today it's 14 14 years old. And the conclusion of that study was that when we pursue happiness, it ends up actually making us less happy. And happiness must be a byproduct of something else. And so, I mean, you can do a quick search on Google. What's more important than happiness? Everyone in their grandma will tell you that more important than happiness in life is meaning in life. We don't need to just, because what happens if happiness is your ultimate goal in life? What happens when circumstances come, when through the storm, happiness is your ultimate, ultimate goal? You're not going to be happy in the storms of life. When suffering comes, when you get cancer, when someone around you dies, you're not going to be happy. Then you, you've, you've lost everything in life. Happiness is circumstantial, but meaning is transcendent in life. You understand, meaning is independent of circumstances. No matter what you're going through, as long as you know that there's meaning, then you can endure that. So Viktor Frankl, someone from our pulpit, I think, preached on, mentioned Viktor Frankl, but he was a um, survivor of the Auschwitz uh, concentration camps. And he was there for for many, many years. And uh, he basically, in nine days, after he survived, he got out of there. In nine days, he wrote a book called Something About Man's Search for Meaning in Life but wrote it in nine days, and it just rose to the bestseller list. And his basic thing, he talked with these two people, two uh, inmates of the camp who wanted to commit suicide. And he asked them why, and they said, we've basically got nothing to live for. And he said the only way that they could endure through the suffering and they became survivors is if he could show them that there was some kind of a meaning in life, meaning to that trial. There's something worth living for. To one of them, it was, you've got a son in another country that you need to survive for and you need to be with. Another guy, you need to write a book, finish that book, and get out there and let your teachings be made known. Saying there's got to be purpose in your life or else you're not going to make it. And so each of us is looking for something 
to give our lives meaning. You remember the movie Chariots of Fire? Actually, some of you guys don't remember it. It's an old, old movie. It was like almost black and white, almost color. It's kind of in that in-between time period of cinematography. But Chariots of Fire was a movie about the Olympics and about one man, Eric Little, and his honoring God. But there's another guy, his competitor in the 100-meter dash, a guy named Harold Abrams. And he was like, you know, he's training and he's working all his life. He's mean, he's angry, he's competitive and all this stuff. And, and someone asked him, why are you doing this? Right before the 100-meter finals in the Olympics, he says, I'll lift my eyes up to the corridor and I will have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Like, dang, that is powerful. He says, listen, in 10 seconds, I will know whether my life was worth living or not. 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. That is sad and tragic. But I tell you what, each of us is looking to something to justify our existence to say, yeah, you know what, because of this, my life is worth living. What are you looking to? What are you looking to? A number of people that like your Instagram post, right? Our youth heard about this at their lock-in. Uh, Daniel Kwok shared about this. Some people find their, I justify my existence by how many people like my picture. And if not enough people like it within an hour, I'll delete it. Because we think that in finding that, we found meaning in life. What do we, what do we look to? Some of us, it's money. If I have enough money, life will be worth living. What did, what did the teacher look to? It's starting, in, in at, uh, starting verse 12 of chapter 1, if you just kind of flip through your Bible. We're not going to read these, but the teacher looked at everything there was to look for in order to find meaning in life. He started out with wisdom. After all, knowledge is power. If I have this, I'll have everything that I need, only to realize that it didn't work. Pleasures. He went to women. He went to alcohol. He went to music. He went to laughter. He went to all of these things. He went to work, toil. Isn't this what Americans drive ourselves into in order to find meaning? Um, I read this quote from from Tim Keller's uh, Facebook page. It said something like, if um, you put your meaning in your, if you've put your search for meaning, your identity in your work, he said, success will go to your head Failure will go to your heart. When we fail at what we think is going to justify our existence, it's not just something we say, oh, I messed up. It goes to our hearts. We don't don't just think I messed up in this 100-meter dash. We say we messed up in life. It goes to our hearts. What do you look into? He goes to all these other things. He goes to to friendship. He goes to uh, advancing, success, all of these things in order to find hope and meaning in life. He didn't, just, he didn't just dip his toe into the pool of pleasure, of riches. Well, let me just test the waters. He dove headfirst into the deep end, and he drowned himself in these things. Now, you read through the book of Ecclesiastes. He did a great devotional reading this week. He dove headfirst into it, got completely drenched in these things, took it as far as it could possibly go. 
There's no more wisdom to be found. There's no more riches to be had. There's no more pleasure to be had. There's no more women to be had. There's no more lasting I can do. It's, I've done everything. He tried everything. And what was his conclusion? The second thing that we're going to see. second thing that we see. Everything under the sun is meaningless. <clears throat> Excuse me. Chapter 1, verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I mean, this is, this is a, you don't want to, you don't want to be friends with this guy. You know, there's some things in life, everything stinks. Everything is not, you don't like localize, it's general, everything is terrible. What's going on? Not much. How you doing? Sucky. Why? Everything stinks. Everything stinks. What do you mean everything? It's all Meaningless. I talk about Debbie Downer here. It's all meaningless. Well, what do you mean? What do you mean everything is meaningless? Certainly something is good. Wisdom, you're wise. No, it's meaningless. Uh, Pleasures, meaningless. It's stupid. It's nothing. Uh, What about, you know, what about all the ladies you got? Meaningless. What about meaningless? I didn't even say anything. It's all meaningless. It doesn't matter what you say. It's all meaningless. That's what he says. This word meaningless. 38 times. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher says, meaningless. The word in Hebrew, and we're talking a lot about Hebrew today. I promise you, there's, if, there, if there's one more, there might be one more coming. But the word for meaningless is hebel. Right? Sounds like pebble, but it's hebel. H-E-B-E-L. Hebel. And the, basically, it, it, the idea is it, it connotes as this, and this was at the title of our series five years ago, is vapor. Here for a second, and then it's gone. Other translations say vanity, vanity. All is vanity, utterly vain. Nothing matters under the sun. He's saying it's it's the idea of a a bubble. You know when we go to the mission trip, Dominican Republic, wherever you go, the universal best way to kill time with kids is blowing bubbles. You get this tube of bubbles, take out the stick, you blow it. Why, why can you do this for hours? The same reason why you can do anything for hours. Well, you, on, your, on your phone, you've got, you know, you got these games. I know that a lot of us deleted them during detox and Lent and stuff. You did a great job. Because the reason why, you know why games are addicting? Not because you've conquered the game and I won and I can't wait to win again. Because you can't win those games. So it's this never-ending pursuit of a carrot that you can never get. Right, that's what these games are. You know, games like this where you're trying to defeat the game and you, two things happen, right? One, you get addicted, and two, you go crazy, right? Ah! And then yeah, that's why you throw your iPhone or your, your Galaxy, whatever, you throw it on the ground, ah! And then, oh, shoot. I need to get a new iPhone with a bigger screen so I can, the bubbles can be bigger, so I can win. The candy can be bigger, so I can. You go crazy or you get addicted. And the reason why kids can play for hours on end Make me another bubble because they're trying to catch a bubble. Oh, I want to chase the bubble. And as they're chasing it, oops, it disappeared. Do it again. Do it again. Play it again. Same, so another. Oh, and as soon as they get it, what happens? Within a second, the bubble disappears. Like, do it again. And the guy blowing the bubble is like, oh, my gosh, my hand is getting all wet. And I've got like all down my clothes and it's sticky now. And he's saying, this is what life 
under the sun is. You're chasing after all of these things, pleasure, uh, wisdom, all of these things. And as soon as you get it, poof, it's gone. And all you've got to show for it is a wet hand. That's it. So you're like, blow me another one. Blow me riches. And you chase after that and you get it and then it's gone. What are you looking for in order to justify your existence on this earth? Have you noticed this? That as soon as you get it, it's gone. As soon as you get it, nothing of substance. It just floats away. Listen, this is how, this is how the teacher describes it. Verse 3. What does man gain from all that? What does man gain from all this labor at which he toils under the sun? Basically, he's saying, we do all this stuff, but there's no gain. There's no surplus. At the end of it all, we die. Verse 4, generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. He's like, we enter stage right of human history. We exit stage left. They come and go. The earth remains. No one's fixed this problem. No one's solved this problem. The reality is that everything under the sun is still meaningless. What's the point? You say we evolve over time, but no one's evolved. No one's figured this stuff out. It's meaningless the sun and then he goes to nature the sun rises and then it sets every day it does that wind blows to the south turns to the north round and round it goes basically says is all everything is a giant treadmill it start it does all this stuff but it doesn't go anywhere all the streams flow into the sea but the sea is never full nothing changes nothing is gained from it all this stuff is going in you're working pulling all this stuff in but the sea level stays the same. They're saying there's no, nothing to be gained from life. We see this in nature. To the place where the streams come from, they go back again. Like the Bill Murray movie, Groundhog Day. You wake up, same thing over and over. And you sense the futility of it all. That's the meaninglessness of it all. I hope you're getting depressed here. Verse 8, all things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its full fill of hearing. And so we see all these things. There's so much to be seen. There's so much to be heard. We've seen it all. We've heard it all. But there's, that's it. The problem with it is that we want, but we never get it. And whatever we get, it's the law of diminishing marginal returns. We've got it all, but then we don't have enough. Verse 9, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. It's nothing new under the sun. There anything of which one can say, look, something new. Even the iPhone 6, it's basically the Samsung Galaxy, whatever. It was here long already, long ago. It was here before our time. And then verse 11, there's no remembrance of men of old. Even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. So here, at the end of it all, we die. People will mourn our death. Within 10 years, 15 years, no one's going to remember us. That's it. It's the reality of life. Let's pray. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so sad so depressing everything he says everything under the sun it's meaningless so what do you do what do you do I, I, I love the way Tim Keller again he describes it he says look when this happens when you realize that you've taken everything to its limits and they don't satisfy then typically people will do one of three things they'll blame one of three things They'll blame the thing itself. You know what? Money's stupid. Money's dumb. It, this, this amount of money, $10,000 a day, wasn't enough. They blame that. Stupid money. I just need to get more money then. That girl, you know what? She was great, but she was a little bit stupid. 
So I'm going to get one that's equally beautiful, but not as stupid. Now you blame the thing. And so you get that girl. Oh, you know what? She's, she smells funny. So you find someone else. She's got to be beautiful. She's got to be intelligent. And she's got to smell right. Then you get that girl. And then you're, oh, you know what? She doesn't satisfy me. So what do you have to do? You have to get one that's athletic, but doesn't smell. It's all these things. And on and on it goes. You blame that thing, that job. You know, this is my dream job. I've got everything I've ever wanted in a job. I can travel. I make tons of money. I can work from home, whatever I want. And then that doesn't satisfy. And so we look for another job that has all those benefits but pays us a little bit more. We blame those things. This is the foolish way. Other people will blame the world we live in. This is kind of what the teacher, this world stinks. Everything is jacked up in this life. It's not possible to find it. Other people will blame themselves. Say, you know what? I'm just cursed. Everyone else has that girlfriend. Everyone else has that wife. Everyone else has that job. Everyone else has that nice car, but not me. I don't know why I can't get it. We play this victim mentality. Everyone else can be happy, but not me. And so we end up not blaming the thing, not blaming the world. We end up blaming ourselves. This is that self-hater, and it leads people to commit suicide time and time again. Where do you go? Because you know what? At the end, when you get to your limitation, the only thing left is frustration. When you've taken everything to the max, the only thing left is frustration. When you can, you, you've tried all you can to jump as high as you can, but you still can't touch the net. Frustration sets in. You've run as fast as you can, but you still can't beat your wife in a race. Then frustration sets in. You've lifted as much as you can, but you still can't look the way you want to look. Frustration begins to set. So what do you do? What do you do? Well, the teacher tells us the last thing. Here's the last thing. To find what you're looking for, to find what we're looking for, we have to know where to look. So the conclusion of the matter he says, look, here's the conclusion. Fear God. You've got to start there. You've got to know where to look. Why? When, before we had our last two kids, we had just Manny. And Manny, she's, to this day, um, she's mama's girl. She loves Olive more than she loves me. Sad. We ask her that question. She says, I love you both. But I know in her heart, when push comes to shove and she gets a boo-boo on her knee, she wants mommy, not me. I'll come to her and she'll say, Daddy, go get mommy. So I understand. I know how it is. I know how it is. But one day, one day before the others were born, um, Olivia had to go out somewhere. I don't know if it was before Elijah was born or she took Elijah out, but it was late at night. She had to go somewhere. It was like 8 o'clock. And it was time for Manny to go to sleep. And I was like, man, Manny's not going to go to sleep with me. She was about two or three years old at the time. So you do the math. I don't know. Before Elijah, I don't know. But she was little. And so I said, oh, man, Manny's not going to want to sleep with me, so i got to do something fun. So we've been, we've been playing a little bit of hide-and-seek at the time. And when I introduced the game to her, I said, this is what you do. Right? Uh, I'll go hide. You close your eyes, count to 20, and then you go find me. Right? You seek me. She's like, I like this game, Daddy. Why don't, why don't we both go hide? I said, who else is playing? She said, nobody. I said, that's not how you play the game. So I said, no, you, one has to hide and one has to find, okay? So you go hide, I'll count to 20, and then I'll go look for you. She's like, all right, so she hides, and 
she wasn't very good at hiding. She'll like hide in the middle of the room and put her head down like this. And if I don't see him, then surely he can't see me. So I'm like, hmm, where could Manny be? And I'm like tripping over her. Like, Manny, you have to hide in a place that's better. Okay? So she's like hiding behind the bed. But the whole time I count to 20, right or not, here I come. And she's like giggling the whole time. I'm like, this is not hard. It's like you have a built-in giggling GPS here. I can find you wherever you are. So I said, my goal, my goal for this Manny and Daddy evening is that I got to teach her how to play so that when she goes to school, she doesn't get schooled by all these other kids who know how to hide. I said, I got to teach you how to play. So Olive left this one night, and it was just Manny and me. It was dark at night outside. It was bright at home, obviously, because the lights are on. And so we're playing hide-and-seek, and so I'm hiding, and I hide in classic classic hide-and-seek hiding place behind the door. Teacher, you got to find the bright place to hide. I'm hiding behind the door in the bathroom. It counts to 20. She's like, uh, 1, 2, 18, 20. Ready or not, here I come. And so she's like coming, and I hear her little pitter-patter, and I, she's looking like under the bed. I'm like, I can't fit under the bed, mate. Don't look there. Like looking in all these places. She's opening up drawers. and So... I hear her. She's like, you know, she's like huffing and puffing. She's so excited. And then she, she's getting closer. I was like, surely she'll find me now. And then she like runs away and she goes to look in a different room. I'm like, no, don't come back here. And she's like running around and her pitter patter is getting more and more frantic. And then after she's like, daddy, daddy. And then after a while she starts crying. I was like, so I come out like, Manny, I'm right here. I'm right here. So I'm holding her and wiping the tears. And she's like crying because to her, Mommy's not here. It's dark outside. I can't find daddy. I'm here alone. So she's like flipping out. So I'm like calming her down. And, and then after she calms down, I debrief this. I say, Manny, listen. To be good at hide and seek, you have to, I don't fit under the bed. Don't look under the bed. I don't fit in a cat. I'm not going to go in there because I can't get out of there. So don't look there. The number one hiding place is behind the door. Right? Her fundamental problem was that in trying to find me, she was looking in all of the wrong places. And so it is with our search for meaning in life. The meaning of life is too big to fit in these tiny little places that we're looking. 38 times it says meaningless, but 27 times you read the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's what you see. It says this phrase, under the sun. What's the point? He's looking for purpose and for meaning at all of these things under the sun. And he says, everything under the sun is meaningless. And he's looking in all the wrong places. But what if? What if you looked above the sun? Would we find meaning there? We would, but the problem is, We can't get there. There was a point in time when God and man walked together in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. And everything that he ever needed, he found. Therefore, pleasure was not a pursuit of meaning in life. It was an enjoyment of what God gave him. The relationship wasn't something in order to justify his existence. It was a gift in order to know that the reason he lived was to know God and to glorify God, to walk together with him. That's what life is about. But as soon as man sinned, this iron curtain of a veil was thrown over the earth so that all we could see was that which is under the sun. 
and we were trapped in an endless pursuit of meaning in a futile existence. So, so many people in this life, so many people in this life are trapped in that, trying to find existence, meaning for their existence in things under the sun, and they're enslaved, and they're captured, and they're shackled, and they're bound. Who could rescue us from the meaninglessness of life that the teacher describes? Because we couldn't get up there. What's up there broke through the curtain and came down here in order that we could know what life is about. It's in that, if for that reason that the teacher could say everything, riches, wisdom, pleasure, all this stuff that the world says is what I need. I found that to be bankrupt and I found the only thing I need is God. This was echoed centuries later by a man named the Apostle Paul who had everything that the world could ever want. But he says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. It's for me to live my life. The justification of my existence is Christ. So much so that even to die is gain because I found my meaning in him. This is what life is about. We're on this endless treadmill trying to catch these bubbles that disappear in our hand. He's saying that Jesus Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself a man, became to this earth, being made in human appearance, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He came down to save us, to do for us what we could never do. What are you looking for for meaning in life? Can I tell you, you're not going to find it here. But can I invite you to lift up your eyes higher to the giver of life? Because there you'll find it. As we sing this song, we lift up our eyes. Let's do that. Not just as we sing, but as we live. Because that is where we'll find meaning. That's where we'll find hope. That's where we'll find a justification for why we live. Let's pray together. Guys, unless, in order to put our hope in that which does not disappoint us, we first must lose hope in the things that do. Have you found, have you found that the things of life don't satisfy? Can I tell you as we go into prayer, the fourth option that C.S. Lewis offers up to you It's not to be hating the world, not to be hating yourself. It's not to be hating that thing. But if you find in yourself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that you and I were made for another world. Therein, we find life. You and I were made for God. Our hearts were made for him, St. Augustine says. Our hearts will be restless until we find our rest in him. Friends, what are you putting your hope in for meaning in life? If it's something under the sun, it's never going to satisfy. You could search for all eternity long and still 
come back home empty. All the pleasures, all the things of this life won't do it. What will only Jesus can? So you take a minute to pray. Let's think about all the things in life that didn't do it for you. And can you lose hope in those things? And unless you do, you're not going to hope in Christ. You're not going to find satisfaction. Let's take a moment right now just to pray and say, Lord, I need you. You're the one that I need. You're the one that I need. You alone can rescue me from this abyss of despair, of hopelessness, of running around in circles trying to find meaning only to realize that it's not to be found. Jesus alone can do that. So let's put our hope in him. Let's pray for a moment, and I'll pray for us. We'll continue to worship through songs and our offerings. Let's pray together for just a moment in the quiet of our hearts. Just respond to the word of the Lord. Let's do that. to make it through the day. There's got to be more to life than trying to die with the most toys. There's got to be more to life than being praised on this earth only to end up same place everyone else does. Six feet under, in the ground. There's got to be more to life. Thank you, Lord, that in your word you tell us that there is. There is more to life. It's found in Jesus. It's found in you. There's meaning, there's purpose in glorifying you and all that we do and enjoying you forever. This is what life is about. To know you, to be known by you, to love you, to be loved by you. This is an indestructible purpose that through the highs and the lows of life, that purpose remains. Lord, help us to let go of the things that don't satisfy our image our worldly status, the toys that we own, the stuff that we have, the degrees that we pursue, the jobs that we have, the numbers in our bank account. Lord, help us to lose hope in the things that don't satisfy in order that we might truly hope in you who do, who does. Work in us, Lord God. Minister to us. May we continue to respond deep in your conviction in our hearts as we offer these songs to you. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.